You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone. This is Rivals, a show about music feuds and beefs and long-simming resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to get to probably what might be one of the saddest feuds that's out there, don't you think? It's really, it's a lot. Yeah, this is like a tale of good and evil, <laughs> as stark as it could be. It, it's like, a, it's a Greek tragedy. It is. And I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to think of like a more obvious hero in a more sort of clear-cut villain. Although I think we'll find in this episode that maybe it's a little more gray. A little more nuanced. But like yeah. not a lot more gray. no. No, no, no. I think I think it's pretty clear who's evil and who's good in this one. <laughs> in case you can't tell from that very vivid description, we're talking about the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, and Mike Love. Now, inner band feuds always have an extra layer of hostility, just born from decades spent fighting for the window seat and touring vans and competing for space on yes. albums. But when the bandmates are related, that's just a whole other layer of, of of bile and spite and and decades of resentment, right? I mean, just ask the Gallaghers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Gallaghers and the Davies brothers and uh, <laughs> Everly's all, all all the way down the line. I mean, they're not brothers; they're cousins. But yeah, there is that. There's no kissing cousins in this uh, <laughs> scenario. Let's just put it that way. All right, let's dive into this mess. <laughs> Now, of course, the Beach Boys are three brothers, Brian, Dennis, Carl Wilson, their cousin, Mike Love, as you said, and their friend, Al Jardine. They were raised in California, which is hopefully not news. And if it is, you're in for a really long show. Uh, I thought they were from Miami. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the Miami, because yeah, there's beaches down there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I can see. No, I'm joking. God, can you imagine if the Beach Boys were actually from Miami? I just feel like that would just warp their whole set, the whole American mythology of like the Florida myth. Can you imagine that? Like... Oh, man. Yeah, it's like, it's not as uh, seductive, the Florida myth. It's like, yeah, come down and, uh, you know, start a meth lab and uh, (laughs) maybe become a serial killer. Screw up an election. You know, exactly. (laughs) No, it's not not as romantic as the California myth. But uh, but Brian and Mike both came from unhappy homes, and I don't want to dwell on this too much and bum everybody out even more than we already will in this episode. But their sort of early life really does set the stage for their relationship, both to music and their relationship to conflicts. Now, with Brian, you have the Wilson patriarch, Murray, who never won Father of the Year. He probably gets the, uh, the Marvin Gaye Senior Award for Bad Dads. And in case you don't know, Mar- Marvin yeah, Gaye's dad w- shot him. W- one of the true worst dads in rock history. I mean, you mentioned Marvin Gaye's dad. <laughs> he actually killed his son. That, that wins. So he's probably worse. Yeah. But Murray, is he's, he's getting the silver medal for terrible dads oh, yeah. in rock history. He 
verbally and physically abused all the boys. And in later years, all these stories came out. Some are probably not true, like him whacking Brian with a two by four. And that's the reason why Brian was deaf in one year. That's a story that he that he put out there in later years. Maybe didn't happen. There's a, another story that I think might be true where um, Murray had a glass eye and he used to, to punish the kids, take out the glass eye and make them stare into the socket when they had misbehaved. Like all these really like gothic, like almost Ugh. like an Edward, Edgar Allan Poe, like lost short story. So anyway, it's clear that the Wilson brothers had a bad childhood. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the, the, the most pertinent thing with Murray is that he was like a hacky musician. Right. Right. I mean, he tried to have his own music career. And I mean, did he have any success? He got a song on Lawrence Welk called Two Sep Side Sep. And that was kind of like the extent of it. It was like just enough to give him connections, just enough to give him the bug. But but nothing really happened for him. But that was the one way that the boys kind of learned to uh, to to get their father to chill out is that they would they would sing. That was like really the only way to his heart. Um and Brian was, uh, he was very good at singing. He displayed musical gifts very early on. As like a toddler, he started singing. And he was kind of a, a self-taught savant, really. He would um, listen, there was a jazz group that he loved, jazz vocal group called The Four Freshmen. And um, it was a quartet. And he used to just listen to their albums for hours and go to the piano and figure out note by note all their harmonies and how they all fit together. And he would teach them to his brothers and his parents. So sort of Brian's relationship to Brian views music as a um as a conflict mullion if you will it, it, it soothes the conflicts in the household and um and that really sort of defines his relationship to music i think in a lot of ways too and then you have mike love the wilson's cousin came, came yeah. from a, a much wealthier home and uh and their families didn't get along well the loves and the wilsons i think mike actually described them in later years as like the hatfields and mccoys uh but on christmas they would get together and set aside their differences and and sing carols, which is basically the story of the Beach Boys. A lot of fighting and then setting well, I was aside say, their differences. Like, did like Mike Love's family? Did they all wear like white pants and like striped shirts? Like I just imagine them. You know, I guess because that's how I pictured Mike Love in the '60s. Two really bad things happened back to back to Mike, which I think scarred him for the rest of his life. One, he graduates high school, no no prospects. He's pumping gas, and he gets his girlfriend pregnant. His parents as is really, you know, a very common tale in that era, freak out. His mom finds out, dumps all his clothes in the driveway and kicks him out. Even Mike's dad is blown away by how how savage this is. She's so angry. And then Mike also loses his part-time job at the sheet metal shop that his dad runs. And the sheet metal shop goes belly up, goes out of business right away. The, the Love family had lived in this really affluent neighborhood, this beautiful house. They lose their home. The Love dad... The sheet metal empire right, the sheet metal. of the Loves. Like they, <laughs> the sheet metal empire crumbles. They, they, were, sheet, they, were, they were sheet metal magnates in Southern <laughs> so, California. Yeah, in the early 60s. Uh, I mean, it, it's really sad, but Mike, Mike's dad's borrowing money from his teenage kids. It's like, it's really bad. So he sees how... He can go from having everything to nothing right away. And it's a fear that a lot of sort of conservative people have, that what you have will be taken from you. So he's in a real desperate spot for money, and he appeals to his cousin Brian, who's musically minded, to start a band. And then thus, you have the Beach Boys. And thus, you kind of already see Brian and Mike approaching music from very different aims. For Mike, it's about business and financial security, and that makes sense given his upbringing. And for Brian, it's about something different. It's it's a way of setting himself apart, of, of self-protection in a way, and in a lot of ways dealing with all the feelings that are inside of him, the sort of this maelstrom of emotions that this is his really his only outlet. So that sets the stage. So really, so, so put another way, really, you could say that Mike Love, he, he looked at music as a way to attain sheet metal-like fortune <laughs> in, his, in his life. Whereas Brian looked at music as a way to achieve transcendence by not being hit in the head with a board by his father. That is, that is a fair, yes, that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, it's like, if I can write the most beautiful music of all time, my dad won't whack me up upside that. He won't make me look at his eye socket. Yes, yes, that's it. And that's why we have God Only Knows. <laughs> I think I just ruined, I ruined pet sounds for all of our listeners. I'm really sorry that now whenever you hear that song, you'll think of all of that horrible stuff. The initial schism 
in the Beach Boys that's really present to this day occurred when Brian quit touring. He, he hated the road. He hated flying. He hated everything about it. And Brian was the chief mastermind behind the Beach Boys. He wrote essentially almost all the music. But we all know this, yeah. though. All, almost all like, the music. Come on, if you listen to the show... I mean, do we have to reel off the many hits that Brian Wilson has written? No, you're 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 right. Fun, fun, fun. Don't worry, baby. Around in my room, surfer girl. Basically, any any, any song with like, did he write like Jan and Dean songs too? Yeah, he wrote Surf City, and it was his first number one. And his dad was pissed. He's like, "You gave that song away? What are you ta- What are you doing?" He's like, "Next time you write a number one, write it for us." So um, it's like when I wrote Two Step Polka, or whatever that song was called. <laughs> I kept it for myself. I wouldn't give two-step... What was it called? Two-step, one-step? What was it called? Two-step, side-step, I think it was called. If any Murray Wilson fans, please tweet me. He w- Murray would not have given two-step, side-step to Jan and Dean. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. He would have kept that for himself. So anyway, so, so Brian Wilson, he's the mastermind of the Beach Boys. He's written tons of songs. And Mike Love is the balding sex symbol at the top of the band. And in, in his... Uh, at least on stage. Right. And, and sax uh, soloist occasionally, too. Um, oh, that's right. He played sax. Right. But it would be like oh, two-note solos. It would be like, well, like 409. It'd be like... <laughs> ma, 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 ma. Yeah. I don't know how good he was at sax. But... Um, but He was not he very was not good. good. But, uh, but Brian has a nervous breakdown on a flight to a show in Texas... In December 1964, that just completely overwhelmed by the pressure to, to write hits, produce the hits, sing the hits, go on the road and play the hits to everybody. It just is too much for him. He decides that he's going to stay home and write and produce and handle all the studio work while the rest of the boys go on the road. And this kind of creates two separate Beach Boys. There's the Beach Boys, the touring unit, which Mike Love fronts as sort of the cavorting uh, beturbaned, besequined front man. And then you have this... Very balding very- <laughs> already. Balding already. I think he was... I, you know, he must have been balding like in grade school. I, I can't imagine Mike Love ever having like a full head of hair. I know. Uh, it would just be weird. I, I say too, like Glenn Campbell was in the Beach Boys at that point too, right? Because he replaced Brian Wilson... Yeah. Um, I think initially, and then Bruce Johnston initially, I mean, he eventually became the permanent replacement on the road, but Glenn Campbell of later Rhinestone Cowboy fame and many other hits uh, was in the Beach Boys for a while at that time. Yeah, I honestly think it was just because he like, because Brian's very tall and Glenn was also very tall. It's a part of me that almost thinks he just fit in like Brian's stage wear and stuff because they were both like well over six feet. But um so, so there are two, and so there's the touring unit of the Beach Boys, and then there's Brian in the studio, and he wants to push the envelope. He wants to compete with Phil Spector, who's his hero. He he loves the whole wall of sound technique where he's just creating these these little pop symphonies, and he also loves the Beatles. He and their their Capitol Records label mates. In a lot of ways, he felt that the Beatles kind of ate the Beach Boys lunch when they came over in 64. All of a sudden, the, the Beach Boys were the biggest thing in the country, and then the Beatles came and totally eclipsed them. And and he he couldn't even get mad about it because they were so damn good. But he, he, Brian has this real competitive drive that comes out in the studio to to create these increasingly complex songs, complex harmonies, complex vocal arrangements, and uh, complex instrumental arrangements that he calls upon this group of studio um session players called The Wrecking Crew, who are you know, now legendary. There's documentaries about them, books about them. So the touring unit and the studio unit, Beach Boys, are kind of fundamentally at odds, if you think about it. Because what does a touring group want to do? They want to get out there, play the familiar songs that people love with what they have available. Smell the grease paint. Right. Meet the girls. <laughs> be rock stars. And then you got Brian Wilson who wants to make Pet Sounds right. the greatest album of all time. Yes. Which he does, and it's incredible. But like Mike Love, who, as we said earlier, is evil incarnate, <laughs> he hates Pet Sounds. How can you hate Pet Sounds? Yeah, he... Uh, How can you hate Pet Sounds, Jordan? You know why? Because he messed with the formula. Uh-oh. That's Uh-oh. it. Don't fuck with your formula. <laughs> that was the thing. That's the quote from this period. Don't fuck with the formula, which Mike Love said. And 
did Tony Asher say that he said that, or was that Van Dyke Parks? I think it was um, one of it was some one another one of Brian's associates. It wasn't them. I think it was uh, Michael Vossi. I think was his name. One of one of the 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 Beach Boys started their own label, and I think it was one of their their label executives. Um, Mike Love has frequently denied that he has said this. He's also frequently denied that he hates pet sounds. He said he had a couple issues with it, though, with pet sounds, and they were pretty much as follows. Brian recorded the instrumental tracks for Pet Sounds while the Beach Boys, the touring group, were on tour in Japan. And they come home from playing, from being a rock and roll band, playing all the, you know, fun, 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 I get around just as like a, a guitar, bass, and drums group to cheering crowds in Japan. And Brian plays them this almost classical sounding with music, with harpsichords and theremins and oboes and accordions and all this stuff clarinets and it's just wildly different than anything they had done before this is not this does not sound like rock and roll to him and this is before sergeant pepper i mean like paul mccartney famously hears pet sounds and that's like the inspiration for him to push the beatles to make sergeant pepper but before pet sounds there really wasn't like a rock record that that was that elaborate you know and mike love just couldn't handle it just blew his mind you know and the other thing that he really hated too were the were the lyrics. He really and part of it was personal because he actually wrote a lot of the lyrics to a lot of the early Beach Boy hits. And for this album, Brian asked Tony Asher, who was I feel like he would have been like on Mad Men. He was a, he was an ad copywriter, very sort of like a, a jazz fan, very sophisticated. And he he really didn't he didn't know almost anything that the Beach Boys had done at all. And for Brian, this was great. It was a totally fresh blood, new approach, and something totally different. But for Mike, he was threatened by this because not only was his role as lyricist in the band threatened, but also there was one song in particular. Do you know this song that he really hated? Like, Don't Hang On To Your Ego? Yeah, there was a song called, that, that was the title, Hang On Your Ego. and uh, Hang On To Your Ego. The idea of like LSD, like shattering your ego, right? I mean, it wasn't it like the drug connotations basically of that song that like Mike Love objected to yeah he called it what do you call it nauseating he said the, some of the words were so totally offensive to me that i wouldn't even sing them because i thought it was too nauseating he his stomach was wrenching trying to sing hang on to your ego and by the way like mike love you know there were if you listen to like early beach boys records there's like songs about like like root beer on those records and like songs about like amusement parks yeah going to the drive-in you know but he it's like you know like he wrote lyrics about like like root beer and he was cool with that, but like a song about how uh, taking mind-altering substances takes away your sense of self and therefore <laughs> allows you to elevate to a higher plane of existence, that was offensive to him at this time. So that was Mike Love's mentality. I mean, it's interesting because like, you know, the dynamic that we're talking about here on Pet Sounds, this idea of Brian Wilson wanting to be musically progressive and Mike Love wanting to maintain the identity of the Beach Boys that was already established. I mean, it seems like that is what ends up being the recurring conflict between these two guys throughout the rest of the history of the band because we've got Smile that comes after this. Right. Which is even, like, which makes Pet Sounds sound conservative. I mean, that is really going out into, like, the nether reaches of, like, pop music in the late 60s. Oh, absolutely. And and I think the sort of the, the, the link between Pet Sounds and Smile is Good Vibrations, which it, it kind of proves both of their points. For Brian, it was his most daring studio experiment to date. It, it, it took something like six months to make, cost $50,000. He assembled it almost like a filmmaker making a movie. He would put all these little snippets of... of um, of musical fragments together, like scenes, like a film editor uh, stitching a uh, film together. Um, and it, it, it was incredibly elaborate, incredibly uh, time-consuming, but it went to the top of the charts. Mike Love wrote the lyrics to it. And he, as he is very quick to point out in many interviews over the years, and he feels that he gave it the hook that the Beach Boys fans who knew their earlier stuff could relate to, which was, Boy, girl. He took this kind of far out idea of, of people giving off different vibrations and all this ESP stuff, and he put it in a context that mass consumers could understand. And, you know, he's probably right. It was the Beach Boys' biggest single of the 60s. And he was like, you know what? What the kids like, they're into excitations. 
I'm going to talk about excitation. Is that a real word? I've never heard that in any other context he, than in Good Vibrations. No, he's... Did, did he make that? That's a made-up word, I, right? Excitations? I, I He references that in an interview where he says, you know, it's not used very much, but I, I think it's like technically a word, but it's like a really stupid word. Maybe. that that's my, that's my official take on it. It might be like technically correct, but you just shouldn't use it. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you have Good Vibrations ends up being this enormous hit, but in a way, it's a last hurrah of sorts of the glory years of the Beach Boys because they end up going into this wilderness period in the late 60s that begins with Smile. And Smile is this mythical record. I think it's fair to say that it's the most famous lost album in rock history, even though it's been found, I guess, you know, it was it was it was released in 2004 when Brian Wilson recorded it uh, with um, musicians of that time, and he and he ended up reviving it, and it's a really good version of it. But there's still this idea of like a masterwork that this mad genius was working on that never quite came off. Yeah, even even when he did finish it, I feel like. He finished it, and then about 10 years later, they uh, Capitol put out a box set with all the, the Smile sessions from back in the 60s with the original group and the original musicians. But th there's still something tantalizing about it not being exactly what it was supposed to be. You know what I mean? Like, it, it did, because it didn't come together in the 60s, because it, it he didn't finish it at the top of his game, if that is a fair thing to say. You know what I mean? No, I yeah, and... Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's so much beautiful music that came out of that period. You know, you've got songs like Wonderful and Our Prayer and Cabin Essence. Surf's Up. And Surf's Up, especially the piano demo oh, version yeah. that you can hear on one of the box sets. There's like a million Beach Boys box sets. Um, but 
I feel like Smile is, even more than Pet Sounds, is like the foundational text of like the Brian Wilson cult. And I know from talking with you that you have fallen into that cult, and I know I fell into that cult. I, I think I'm still in the I mean, I still love Brian Wilson. I still love the Beach Boys. But there was a time in my life where I was like, I was like one of those teenage men, teenage into 20-something-year-old men who like have Brian Wilson posters on the wall and like read books about Brian Wilson and and sort of ruminate on the idea of this romantic loner broken man genius who tried to make a masterpiece and and couldn't quite pull it off and there's so much about Brian Wilson I think that is based on unrealized potential obviously he made so many great records in his lifetime but what is I think ultimately so tantalizing to those of us in the Brian Wilson cult is the idea that he was creating this sort of God-level music that he came so close to finishing but couldn't complete it. I mean, is that fair to say? Is that a fair summation of, the, of, of like, the appeal of, of, of being obsessed with this guy? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. For me, it was, and maybe this probably says more about me than it does about Brian Wilson's fans, but as just a, a, a shy, sensitive, kind of dumpy kid in high school who had, you know, a, a lot of feelings and didn't really know what to, what to put them in, there was something romantic about this guy who, um, who took all of these teenage emotions and, and went off and made something beautiful with them. And he wasn't afraid to be vulnerable or sensitive. And I, I think that that was sort of where I approached him and what I really admired about him. I was that it, there was a certain bravery to it too. I mean, you, he kind of, he hijacked this multi-million dollar feel good industry and used it to express himself in a really, really beautiful, really, really intimate way. It's almost like reverse punk rock in a way. You had all these people, including his own family, saying, no, 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 make rock and roll. Like, like just, just, just be out there. Like, just, you know, just play stuff for the kids. And he wanted to make something that was a little more... I say sophisticated. I don't mean that to come off as pretentious, but something something that... Certainly sensitive. Right, sensitive. Like, like more sensitive and beautiful. Yeah, and and... And the sort of the pressures working against him were immense. I mean, there have been books written about why Smile didn't happen, documentaries, and I've read every single one of them. I mean, his own struggles with uh, drugs and, and mental illness, which has been well documented over the years, uh, troubles with the label, troubles within the group, especially with Mike Love, who, you know, if he's not into pet sounds, he's definitely not feeling, um, you know, a, a, a sort of kaleidoscopic vision through American history with uh, Van Dyke Parks's uh, lyrics, which is really where the, the smile showdown, the big smile showdown occurred was when the band were recording the vocal sessions for Cabin Essence, track Cabin Essence. Um, Mike Love is handed a lyric sheet. And again, if he, if he doesn't like hang on your ego, he really doesn't know what to make of the line. Over and over, the crow fly, cries uncover the cornfield. Over and over, the thresher hovers the wheat field. And he's just like, what the, Brian? Crystal clear, man. <laughs> Crystal clear. You can, anyone can figure that out. Come on, Mike. But Brian, Mike's not, that doesn't really get it. So he's like, Brian, what the hell is this? Get, get the guy who wrote this in here. So Brian calls Van Dyke Parks into the studio. Van Dyke realizes very quickly that he's sort of wandered into a, a, a family feud that's been simmering for years. And Mike just, what's, his, what's the expression? Holds his feet to the flame and says, just makes him explain himself. What do these lyrics mean? And Van Dyke says, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what these lyrics mean. They're poetry. If you don't like them, throw them away. And uh, and that is kind of the main, the example that's cited again and again in sort of the disintegration of Smile is, is the band rebelling against um, the direction Brian wanted to go in in a very, very concrete way. He did. Can I just say quick that like I love that Van Dyke Park still hates Mike Love like <laughs> more than fifty years later. Like Mike Love's birthday uh, wasn't that long oh, yeah. ago, and on Mike Love's birthday, Van Dyke Parks tweeted out a photo and he said, "Happy birthday, Mike!" And it was a photo of Mike Love with Donald Trump, <laughs> and it was just like you are still pissed about Cabin Essence, man. I love it. I love Van Dyke Parks. Never let it go, man. 
The people tell you that you should let go of your grudges after 50 years. I say, hold on tight, Van Dyke Parks. Keep your hatred of Mike Love alive because it gives the rest of us life to see you carrying that grudge. Do you want to know a mind-blowing factoid? Uh, you know who plays accordion on Kokomo, the the Mike Love-led uh, latter-era Beach Boys hit? No idea. Van Dyke Parks. Van Dyke Parks plays accordion on Kokomo. Oh, man. Which kind of like throws my whole like, yeah, like Van Dyke still being pissed at Mike thing into... Uh, but I bet in Van Dyke's mind, he was thinking like, this is a subversive move for me to be doing <laughs> yeah. this. I'm I'm, gonna, I'm adding a subversive wrinkle to this like beer commercial of a song. <laughs> in like 30 years, they're going to talk about this on a podcast and it's going to blow their minds and that'll make it yeah. worth it. Yeah. So Van Dyke, I, I salute you for that. You know, it's it, it's interesting because... You know, we talk about Smile, we talk about the album that we imagine it to be and the album that it ended up not being. And the reality is that for the Beach Boys, as I said earlier, it did send them in the, into this wilderness period where I think for like the hardcore Beach Boys fans, like the records that they put out in the late 60s and early 70s are like some of the most fun and interesting records that they put out, like Sunflower, oh, yeah. Sunflower and great. Surf's Up and... Holland and all those records. Even Friends is but great. commercially, Friends is great. 2020, uh, which has the song that Charles Manson wrote, and Dennis Wilson changed the lyrics, and then and didn't, didn't that's pay. partly why we had all the murders and all that stuff. Um, but um, really, the Beach Boys are like a commercial non-entity for several years until the mid seventies, where there's this nostalgia now for the early 60s and you have you know films like American Graffiti that are stoking this which features several Beach Boys songs and then the Beach Boys themselves they put out a greatest hits album in 1974 called Endless Summer which ends up being a big hit and it's around this time when the Beach Boys certainly by the end of the 70s going into the 80s they stop being a band that is like a vital creative force and they become essentially a show band playing oldies. The gulf between their their commercial success and their touring success just became so wide that they just decided to, to, to go out and play the hits. And that's where Mike Love excels. And that was partially just what the, the industry dictated at the time. But also Brian was really sidelined by his you know, extensive mental illness. This was the period when, when he was in bed for a number of years and then he had his... his in a sandbox. In a sandbox, too. <laughs> He's in a bed in a sandbox. Like, I feel like the sandbox aspect is, uh, like, it'd be sad enough if he was just in bed, but, like, his bed was in a literal sandbox. No, his piano was in the sandbox. He wanted to feel the beach when he wrote. But wasn't the be- But wasn't his piano in the bedroom? Like with the sandbox, or was like there was was there a separate sandbox room with the piano? In it? <laughs> I think this is this is how deep my nerdery goes. It was in Laurel Way, his house pre Smile, um, and he had the sandbox built in the living room for the baby grand piano to go in, and so he could feel the beach when he wrote. But then his dog started using it as a place to go to the bathroom in, and they got rid of it. So that's that's the story of the Brian Wilson sandbox. Which really, you got to say, like, the dog was more logical than Brian Wilson in that instance. I feel like if you put a sandbox in your house, it's logical for a dog to take a shit in it. It's not logical for a genius songwriter to write songs in the sandbox. So, you know, I'm saying, you know, point one to the dog in that instance, I have to say. Those dogs can be heard And Brian at the Wilson end didn't really write any great songs in that time. I guess other than, there's that story about, like... Isn't there a story about like Mike Love showing up at his house and like berating him until he wrote Sail on Sailor? Yeah. Oh, like I heard this story. Like he was like basically like bullied into writing this incredible song on ended up being on the Holland album and is one of like like one of the only truly great songs of like that period that he wrote. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was like bullied into doing it, basically. Oh, I mean, the, that scene was played out again and again and again. I mean, the thing that a lot of people know about Brian is that in, in the early 70s, everyone kind of thinks he was already in bed. He was doing a lot of stuff, he, but none of it was for the Beach Boys. Like he he was working on like he like poetry albums with people and he was working with Danny Hutton um, 
who's in Three Dog Night and uh, working on all these sort of weird side projects. Brian's wife um, was in a group called American Spring. Have you ever heard them? <laughs> no, I've had Oh, not. it's wild. I've heard of Irish Spring, but not American <laughs> Spring. For you soap fans out there. Um, no, you got to check it out. It's so weird. It's like, I think it's from 1971. It's Brian's wife and her sister are doing this like double act. It's it's so weird. Go check it out. It sounds like something like I I don't I don't even know. I I, I can't. It just has to be this, heard to be. Believed. Is this like the proto Wilson Phillips? <laughs> I you know what? I never thought of that. I sonically no, but familial maybe. Yeah, I mean it's it, it yeah, totally it's worth like, checking. It's out. like the model. But but the band would just like they would say to him, "Look, you've got to do this for us. You are under contract to do this for us. If you don't, your wife will leave you. She will take the kids. The record company will sue you, and you will be out on the street with no one, no home." I mean, they would say these things to him, and which is, and he was in a really fragile mental state anyway, and it was really, really. I mean. They bully him, which is a lot of ways the way, same way his dad got him to make music when he was young too. It was really through bullying was the way to get get him to to produce stuff. But it was, it's really sad, yeah. And and at that time too, I mean, you had this dynamic basically where you know Brian Wilson coming back to the Beach Boys. It, 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 it's almost like you know, like a, like a like a sports team like waiting for like their injured quarterback to come back. You know, yeah. like when Washington had Robert Griffin. And there was like all those years like where, oh, Robert Griffin's going to come back and he's going to be as good as he used to be. He's going to get his leg back together and, you know, we're going to go back to the playoffs. And he never really could do it. And, you know, there was that campaign in uh, 1976, I think it was, where it was like the Brian is back thing. And I think there was even like a Brian is back song where, you know, he's, he's going to be back in the band. Even though like it's kind of sad because like Carl Wilson and Dennis Wilson were writing like some really great music at that time trying to step out of their brother's shadow, but like Brian's shadow was so large that they couldn't ever quite do it. You know, even though Dennis made a record in 77 called uh, Pacific Ocean Blue, which is, I think, a wonderful record and it's beloved by cultists everywhere. People who are in the Brian Wilson cult, I think tend to also be in the Dennis Wilson yeah. cult. I, I I assume you are as well. Oh yeah, the, the, the true beach boy. Yeah. Did you know that uh, Dennis is... The uncredited co-writer on "You Are So Beautiful to Me," the Joe Cocker Billy Preston track. I know that he like would sing it on stage because there's when when his voice was shot at the end of his life, they would show you know there's like documentary clips of him singing. That, yeah, you know, like where he sounds like Tom Waits yeah, basically at the end of his You're life. Right. For me, and uh, I'm curious if you had a similar situation. I think like what was so appealing about a lot of this stuff coming at it, you know and this is getting back to the cult of Brian Wilson, was the Beach Boys that I first encountered was in the late 1980s when they had Kokomo, when that was a huge hit, number one song in 1988. And also when the Beach Boys were like regular guest stars on Full House. You know, like they were known as like the Full House <laughs> band, essentially, in the late 1980s. And... um. I knew the Beach Boys as Mike Love's band, essentially. I mean, Brian Wilson would be in the background at those times. Like, there's like if you watch those old Full House episodes, like there's episodes that Brian Wilson is on, and I think he he even has some dialogue, like very awkward dialogue, yeah, uh, in those episodes. But the Beach Boys were like the squarest, dorkiest, uh, you know, least cool band in the world. They were the Reagan's band. They were the, like, the Reagan's favorite band. They were the Reagan band. And, and that was what Mike Love signified. Yeah. And then to actually go back and like learn about this history and learn like, oh, wait a minute. Like in the late, in the mid to late 60s, they were actually this innovative uh, far out band. And it was because of this guy, Brian Wilson, that was driving them. You know, that it was like discovering a whole new world. It'd be like discovering that, um, that you know, like that Ronald Reagan was actually you know uh, Jerry Garcia or something <laughs> like that. He was Jerry Garcia in the sixties, you know. Yeah. Uh, like, like which which would have blown my mind to have discovered that. It's like, oh wait a second, like why is he a Republican now? But like back then, he was like this cool hippie guy. Um, and I think for me, that created 
immediately this fascinating tension in the Beach Boys between really the the two competing ideas of what this band was and like what the real Beach Boys were. And it was like, are the real Beach Boys this sort of like oldies, nostalgic, conservative, uh, down the middle of the road act that you see on Full House? Or are they this like counterculture, cutting edge, progressive pop act from the 60s that never fully realized their potential because of the conservative guy? Um and, and now I almost feel like it's reverted the other way, too. You think so? Well, no, I almost feel like we and again, this is somebody who's just a total diehard Brian Wilson, Pet Sound Smile era fan. But it almost feels like that era has been so overrepresented in recent years that we almost neglect the 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 people who who do love them for their early hits and stuff. You, you know what I mean? It almost became subversive in the late 80s and early 90s to say when Kokomo was, was out there to say, oh, yeah, I to be a. A, a self-described like cool person and be like yeah i love the beach boys did you know they had this whole weird era where they were like you know getting crawling on their knees making barnyard sounds and brian wilson's uh swimming pool or, you know all that kind of crazy stuff and I, I feel like that sort of the rejection of all of brian's most heartfelt and innovative music in the 60s we've overcompensated for it so much now that i almost feel like we've neglected the hits in a weird way, which in the hits signify to me, Mike Love. What do you what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think it depends on who you talk to. Yeah. I think like if you're especially if probably like among people that we know and our friends, it is overrepresented, you know. But I feel like in the gen in the general culture, most people don't know deep cuts from 2020 right. or from Sunflower. You know, like that stuff is still pretty obscure, and it is more about the surf hits of the early 60s, which, by the way, I love those songs, too. Like, I love the entire Beach Boys history. Um, but I don't think there's any question that, like, their image as fixed in the minds of, like, most people is the image that's been perpetuated by Mike Love going on, you know, almost 60 years at this point. It is interesting to me, though, that this conflict that we're talking about, about, you know, who is the real Beach Boys? Um it continues up until this day. I mean, you know, there was that 50th reunion tour that they did. Um, I guess the, when was that in 2012? Yeah, yeah. Where, where, uh, where, where Brian Wilson came at, back into the band, and they did a bunch of shows, and they were very well received. And then it ended acrimoniously, essentially because Mike Love ended up booking a bunch of dates with the usual band, you know. Bef- even though there was all this demand for like the the classic lineup, he I mean, am I getting this wrong? I mean, because I, I feel like Michael basically said, "Okay, well, this was like a temporary thing where Brian Wilson's back in the band. Uh, now I'm going to get back to playing county fairs with Bruce Johnston, <laughs> and we're going to play right. We're going to play this the same 15 songs every night. I mean, it, all throughout the 90s, Brian and Mike had were engaged. I feel like they they lived in court. They were suing each other for one thing or another. Mike sued him for song royalties that he felt he was owed. He felt he wasn't credited for, for writing lyrics on a bunch of songs. Um, he sued uh, Brian for his autobiography that he wrote. Um, and then he also sued the entire band when Carl Wilson died in 1998 to, um, to own the rights to the Beach Boys name. I think that's important to say is that Mike Love, after the death of Carl Wilson, retained the right to have the Beach Boys name out there, which is a lot of Brian Wilson fans thought was weird because, wait, Brian Wilson can't tour under the Beach Boys name without Mike Love's permission. That's kind of strange considering he's, you know, Brian Wilson. So for from the late 90s until 2012, like you said, yeah, there were two, there were. Brian toured usually with Al Jardine and Mike Love uh, toured with Bruce Johnston. And then they got back together for the 50th anniversary. They made an album. Uh, That's why God made radio. What did you think of that album? You know, I have not heard it since it came out. I remember I reviewed it and I think I reviewed it favorably, but I have no desire to ever hear that (laughs) album ever again. Uh, I don't know. Is it is it good though? I, I I guess I remember it being okay. I remember, yeah, I remember it being better than I thought it would be, but I haven't listened to it since then either. But and my, I mean, my, my memory of that tour is that they were able to strike a balance between playing the hits and some more obscure songs. Like it seemed like it was a happy medium 
yeah of commercial and artistic beach boys music and they also and all the the guys in the band seem happy too which is why a lot of them were really shocked brian and al in particular were really surprised when they learned that mike was going down the road without them and mike claimed that it was a miscommunication he said he was told from brian's management that brian no more tours for him so mike moved on and just moved on with his life and started booking like he said county fairs and stuff with his usual band and then brian's camp said never mind wait we we want to go and mike said too late it's a lot of he said he said i guess in this case basically brian looked like he'd been dumped and he i think he said in an interview it feels like i got fired which is a horrible thing for i mean i'm hard pressed to think of a more beloved musical figure than than brian wilson am i right like it just well Right. I mean, again, like he is good incarnate, you know, he's this angelic figure who has had a really hard life. He's written some of the most beautiful songs ever. Just seems like a sweet guy, really hard to dislike. And then you have Mike Love, who um, just seems perpetually agitated and grumpy. He looks very stern all the time. Uh, He's very fond of like, wearing tucked-in shirts and very tight pants well into his 70s. Uh, and uh, he's also a Trump supporter, which is just like the cherry on the shit Sunday with him, <laughs> I feel like. You know, you have to also be a Trump supporter, Mike Love? Really? Can't you just be apolitical? I just, I'm just not asking you to be a liberal, but you could be apolitical. I mean, come on. You have to, like, wear the MAGA hat and and do all that stuff. What's hilarious to me, too, is, you know, the most recent conflict between these guys uh, was concerning Mike Love booking a Beach Boys show. What was it? It was at a it was a Safari Club (laughs) International Convention in Reno. It's basically like game hunting. Right. Right. Like where they're hunting like like, you know. I don't. It's not endangered animals, but it's, it's like so you know. Far off, yeah. I mean, it's it's like he could. It's like it's yeah, like it's, it's like, like playing at like a puppy kicking convention. Like I mean, it, it's that level of like, <laughs> right. yeah. Like you don't. You really maybe don't don't need to do that. Like a gig's a gig. I know, but how does it even work? Are they on stage playing fun, fun, fun while people are like executing animals <laughs> in the audience? Like, <laughs> or do they kill the animals after the show? Or is it like that's the victory? At, like you know, like they kill them first, and then they go to see the Beach Boys. I don't, I don't really know how that would how that would work. But either way, it's not really the association that you want as a Beach Boys fan. You know, to think of animals being killed and and Beach Boys music playing. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more rivals. <laughs> I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience. And stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah Yeah Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, this is the conflict between these guys. And, you know, this is the part of the episode like where you have to think of like a pro case for, for both people in the rivalry. I feel like with Brian Wilson, it's pretty easy. Yeah to make the case for him. And I think we've already made it that he was the creative genius of the band, that he was the one that he just seems more likable and sweet. And I don't think there's any question that he's the soul of the Beach Boys, that he's the one that is what, he's the person that sets them apart from all the other surf groups, certainly of the 60s and and, and of most American pop groups of that era. Like, there's a lot of great bands from that time, but like they don't have a Brian Wilson. Like he is the genius of the group. Uh, so I don't. I feel like you don't have to work very hard to make a pro case for Brian Wilson. No. Um, I'm kind of more intrigued by the, trying to make a pro case for Mike Love because this is literally playing devil's advocate. Like we are literally defending the devil with Mike Love. I I don't actually think it's that hard to make a, a Mike Love case. I, I, which is I, I know. I mean, I'm I'm literally looking at on my wall. I have a autographed Pet Sounds tour set list that my cousin, who did lights for him in like 2001, got for me, and I have it framed over my desk. It's one of my prized possessions. In the same place that some families would have like a portrait of Jesus, I have a, a Brian Wilson autograph. So th- that's the level that we're dealing with here. But I will say, I think Mike Love was a crucial ingredient to the band. I think that um, really, you think of the Beach Boys, you think of this. The California myth, and I know it's been done to death in every think piece ever written about the Beach Boys for the past, you know, since David Leaf was writing about them in the late 70s. It's been done to death, but it really is a crucial part of Americana, and that springs from Mike Love's lyrics. And he was a, the the main lyricist from the Beach Boys uh, in the sort of pre-Pet Sounds era. I know Brian worked with other people like Gary Usher and... Um, What's his name? Uh, Robert Christian, I think his name was. But primarily, it, it's a lot of it is Mike's vision. It's it's Dennis Wilson's life. He was the only surfer in the group. It's Brian's music, and it's Mike's poetry. And that all combined, I think, makes the Beach Boys at their most commercially successful era, which is what we all think of them as, really. I mean, in all honesty. So I think that was a really important contribution that he made that I think doesn't get uh, enough play. Kind of like what I was saying earlier about how there's sort of an overcompensation for praising Brian's more experimental stuff. I think that, you know, that 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 contribution to American culture, I mean, you can't underestimate Brian Wilson's contribution to popular music. You know, that that's a given. But I think Mike's contribution to it, too, is is also important. And also... I think he was the front man that the Beach Boys needed. Brian Wilson is many things. He's not a front man. I mean, I what do you, what do you think? I, I think that the Beach Boys wouldn't exist without Mike. Yeah, when you were talking about uh, Mike Love's lyrics, I was just thinking about one of my favorite Mike Love lines, and I think this, there's a lot of wisdom in this line. And when he wrote, "Here a mug, there a mug, everybody chug a mug," <laughs> uh, it's a powerful statement from Mike Love. No, I mean, look, uh, being a little snarky here. No, I think you're right. I mean. Uh, yeah, I, I have a theory about Mike Love that he actually invented the pop punk voice. Well, that if you listen to like a lot of pop punk singers now, that they sound nasally and they have they sort of have this affectation of sounding boyish, even though they're like in their forties and maybe even the, in their fifties at this point. I think that descends from Mike Love, and it, it it goes from Mike Love. I think Joey Ramone was influenced by Mike Love and was taking his vocal style and, and exaggerating it and taking it in a different direction. And then from there, like Joey Ramone was almost like the John the Baptist <laughs> of that vocal style. Like he went out into the world and convinced many other people to sing that way. 
And but that comes from Mike Love, and it's it's a quintessentially American uh, type of singing. The other thing about Mike Love, you know, I've taken a lot of shots at Mike Love. I do think he's the devil. I will. I, I think he is an evil man, but I I do kind of like him. I kind of like his evilness uh, because um, I've interviewed Mike Love. I interviewed Mike Love a long time ago. It's probably about fifteen years ago. Oh wow! And I interviewed him, and I was and I was a Brian Wilson loyalist going into this interview, and I was like going to give it to him. I was going to talk to him about like how he's just totally prostituted the Beach Boys name and that he plays the same set list every night and he's not digging into like the obscure songs that all all of his hardcore fans love and I had all these questions ready to go and I get into the interview and I realized that like first of all Mike Love is like the most zen sounding guy in the world yeah. like he barely talks above a whisper and I, I don't even think he's like opening his mouth very much. He's sort of like a ventriloquist for himself because he's just like, hey man, like we don't play the, the songs from Sunflower because the, the crowds aren't going to get into it. And I'm just trying to please the people. And he's speaking like this. And like, I just found my dislike of him melt away. Uh, at least in that moment. I think I got it back when we got off the phone. But like when we were on the phone, I was like, oh, this guy, he's like, he, he has like, you know, because like Satan himself is a very charming man. <laughs> and, 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 and Mike Love in, in, in phone conversation is, is a charming guy. Oh, yeah. I, I've interviewed um, him also and I had the exact same experience. I thought because I, I, I was in the camp that Mike Love was the Antichrist. And on the phone, he was completely just charming and i and i you know it's a part of me that that holds on to that and actually i i enjoyed my time talking to him he also butt dialed me afterwards which was like days later which was really uh something that i i cherish and hold on to also well and you know the contrast with that is the brian wilson interview which i feel like if you're a music journalist for any period of time the rite of passage is to do a bad brian wilson interview (laughs) because Brian Wilson, God bless him, he's not very good in interview situations. He usually lasts about six to seven minutes before he has to, like literally, I think he has an ejector seat in his house (laughs) that will thrust him away from the telephone and get him away. Um, It's extremely awkward to talk to him, and yet whoever his handlers are, they always make him extremely accessible to do interviews. So anyone out there, if you want to interview Brian Wilson, just send an email to like his publicist or manager and make up a website name. You know, it doesn't have to even be a real website. And I guarantee you, you'll get an interview with Brian Wilson because uh, his people will book any interview, but just be prepared that he's going to give one word answers the entire time and is going to be kind of confused and, and not terribly coherent during that talk um yeah i i mean because have you talked to him i I talked to him twice i and i sort of knew because oh man every interview you went back for seconds like a a rodeo i i you know well because every profile with brian wilson for the last 20 years when you read it, it it just always turns into a meta thing like i'm about to interview brian wilson and then i and because it can't be done in a traditional way because just the responses he gives don't really lend themselves to that. So the first time I went, it was in person, and it was kind of what you expect. It was it was it was difficult. the The second time was on the phone, and I he actually stayed on longer than I had initially been told I had time for. And at the end, he said, "What's your name again?" I told him Jordan. So oh, Jordan, I, I really want to thank you. That was a really enjoyable interview. And that I think. Between that and talking to Paul McCartney or my twin, like, just still, I'm I'm beaming right now even just recalling it. It meant the world to me because you feel bad because he looks like he's not having a good time when you interview him most of the time. Oh, yeah. And and you're just like, why why are we putting him through this? I don't want to, you know, I I love this guy so much and all his music. I I feel like I'm antagonizing him. This is awful. I want to end this. But in that moment, that was really nice. So that was really special. I I think because I, I just... I've learned from my past mistakes. I kind of knew the stuff that he liked to talk about, so I just sort of went there. But but you're right. He is, he is a challenging interview. He's probably the most challenging interview out there. My experience was I interviewed him and John Cusack in the basement of 
uh, Club Metro in Chicago. Whoa. And it was for that movie oh, Love and Mercy. where Brian, where, where, yeah, where John Cusack played uh, 80s Brian Wilson, which is as good as that description sounds, <laughs> by the way. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> doesn't really work. Paul Dano plays the 60s Paul Brian Wilson. Great. And I, I think Paul Dano's great. John Cusack is. Uh, not entirely convincing, but it's an interesting movie. But um, I, I told Brian Wilson that I used to listen to Wonderful in high school and uh, like and, and feel sad and like look out the window and, and cry tears. And he's like, oh, that's great, man. And then he shook my hand and walked away, <laughs> which is probably an appropriate response, really, to that story. So. I was glad to have done it. I was like, "Oh, Beethoven shook my hand." Yeah, I, I, I feel, I feel, I feel happy. You know, not journalistically great, but it was a, it was a good experience. Um, so, if, if we have to talk about these two guys coming together, you know, what is it that I guess is their common ground? You know, I mean, they, they've, they, they you know, because I feel like they've had periods like where they weren't at each other's throats where they weren't suing each other and then they kind of fall back into it. And then it seems like they're connected through both spite and genuine affection, you know, for their entire lives. But like, what's the case, I guess, for them being together? I feel about Mike Love, similar how I feel about Robbie Robertson, the way he talks about Levon Helm. Whenever Mike talks about Brian in interviews, there's this genuine affection that comes through. I mean, a lot of profiles of Mike, when he talks about Brian, he starts getting teary and he just talks about, you know, I just, I just want to write with my cousin. I just want to make hits with my cousin. And, you know, okay, the fact that he says, I want to make hits with my cousin is a little suspicious and it's kind of a, a strange way to word that. But I think that there is a lot of genuine affection there. And it is sad that all this this business stuff, not to mention extreme amounts of familial dysfunction split these guys apart. But I, I think that their egos, Mike Love is hanging on to his ego. Uh, I, I think that there's a certain amount of ego there that prohibits them. There's a, a great line in um, in Brian Wilson's uh, second memoir that came out in uh, 2016, where he, he goes to, uh, he, he shows Mike a song that he's working on and says, hey, Mike, you know, what, what do you think of this? Do you want to work on this together? And Mike thinks for a minute and goes, well, you know, I could make this song 20% better, but I won't. If we do something, I want to start from scratch, <laughs> which I, uh, I think sums it up. <laughs> what a dick. What? He's such a dick. I mean, I mean the Robbie Robertson comparison, um, uh, Robbie and Levon, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me because not to, uh, for the reason that you're talking about and also that, you know, Robbie Robertson is so easy to vilify. In the same way that Mike Love is easy to vilify, and and for a lot of you know, and and that's due to that's their own fault in a lot of ways. But I think the the case that you could make for those guys is that you know they've had to put up also with like a lot of dysfunction yeah. from their partners. You know, even if like Levon and Brian are like the heart and soul of those bands, they're also like both sort of broken screw-ups in a lot of ways, like at least in their personal lives, like as brilliant as they are creatively, you know, they're, they, they're, they're sort of a mess in their personal lives. And I can imagine like being in a band with Brian Wilson would be difficult a lot of the time, especially if this is something you want to make your career. And, you know, as easy it is to, as, you know, you want to roll your eyes at like the don't fuck with the formula thing. But it's like, if you're in this band that's successful, you don't want to fuck with the formula. You know, you do want to like keep making hits and, and, and having a career. And he wasn't wrong about pet sounds and later smile derailing the beach boys progress. I mean, it, that actually did hurt their, their, their career in the, in the short term. I mean, we look back at, on both of those as being great records. That sounds but like, tanked. In the short term, at least Mike, Mike, Mike Love was right. And, um, I think the idea that like, you know, Brian Wilson needed someone like Mike Love, you know, as big of an asshole as he is, he did communicate the genius of Brian Wilson's music in a way that was palatable for the average person and allowed Brian Wilson's music to reach exponentially more people than if Brian Wilson had just been making, you know, intellectual pocket symphonies that with lyrics that were, 
you know, over the heads of the average person. So, you know, you've got the genius and you've got the communicator and they needed each other in order to both be great. Yeah, the, the examples I always point to are California Girls and Good Vibrations. I mean, two songs that really showcase both of their strengths. You've got, I mean, the opening to California Girls is like an Aaron Copeland piece. I mean, just it, it, it's gorgeous. I always, whenever I hear it, I think of a sunrise. You see that first guitar being plucked. It sounds like, it was, to me, it... It sounds like a visual of a little ray of sun peeking over the horizon on, in Southern California or something. It just is perfectly. And then Mike comes in with his lyrics and it takes you to that place that you already hear in your head. <laughs> well, East Coast girls are happy, really. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Um, like, I think it was. I forget. There was some Beach Boys documentary that that was like an official one. I think it was Endless Harmony, where Brian's sitting at the piano and with Al Jardine, and he goes, "Al." I'll do the thing, and Al pinches his nose, and Brian starts singing like Mike Love, right? <laughs> Just with like, Meh. yeah, yeah. Even even Brian Wilson can clown Mike Love. You know, it's like he can come back to earth and clown <laughs> Mike Love. So, so again, it's it's good and evil. Brian Wilson's good. Mike Love is evil, but you know, good wouldn't seem good without evil. And uh, evil wouldn't seem as evil without good. You need them both. And uh, it's the yin and the yang of the Beach Boys. Even the devil can write good songs about root beer. That's right, man. Chug a lug, baby. Chug a lug. That's where we leave you, folks. All right. That's another episode (laughs) of Rivals, everyone. Thank you for listening. Going to the dark side with us in this episode. (laughs) Uh, We look forward to uh, talking about more Rivals with you guys next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Check out American Spring. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience. And stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.